Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Republicans in Washington released their long-awaited tax reform package yesterday. Not surprisingly, it's comprehensive, and it could have an impact on almost everyone. Highlights of the plan include fewer tax brackets, tax cuts for individuals and corporations, and a repeal of most, most personal exemptions, but an increase in standardized deductions. Joining us today is Republican Congressman Scott Perry, who represents York Adams and part of Dauphin and Cumberland County. Congressman Perry, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Great to be here. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Congressman Perry, first of all, there is a lot here, and uh, we'll just touch on some of the highlights during the next 15 minutes or so. But in your mind, what is the most important aspect of this tax reform package? Well, the most important aspect is is that uh, that the American people, whether you're an individual or you're a business, uh, that you're paying less taxes. Uh, let's face it, uh, the tax code in America hasn't been reformed for uh, for thirty some years now, and I think that it's hard to argue that it's competitive with the rest of the world. And we really have become, whether we like it or not, uh, a global economy where we're competing with folks around the world and. And especially in Pennsylvania, we, you know, the corporate tax rate where, where businesses hire people and have to compete globally, we just, we are uncompetitive and we're watching our small town businesses leave. We've been watching that for, for decades now and it's long overdue. We absolutely have to do something about it so that people have the opportunity to, to follow their dreams and, and, and earn a living that they can be proud of and that supports the things that they want to do with their families and their lives. And we don't have that right now. So it has to be lower taxes, it has to be simple, and it has to be fair. And I want to talk about those individuals that uh, will be, as you say, paying less in taxes, although not everyone will, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But since you brought up corporate tax rates, here in Pennsylvania, we do have a 9.9% corporate income tax rate. You used to be in the state legislature, so you're well aware of that. What this plan would do is reduce the current corporate tax rate from 35 to 20%. Now, the idea behind this, of course, is that there would be uh, more corporations, employers that would stay in this country, uh, maybe report their income here in the United States, and that this would create jobs and that, uh, you know, they would hire more people, maybe invest in uh, their their equipment, uh, what they need for their businesses. But what guaranteed, I def- maybe guarantee is not the word to use, but what way do we know that businesses would respond in that way? Well, I mean, a, a 15% decrease in your taxes is, is fairly dramatic at any, you know, 15% of anything is fairly dramatic. So uh, oftentimes taxes drive people's behavior. Business is no different. Business be, behave based on the tax assessment or liability that they have. And lowering that it incentivizes them uh, to bring those to, you know, especially if you're working overseas, obviously, there's another component to that, but it, it incentivizes them to Uh, not only bring your work home, but to do more work and put your capital uh, at risk, put your money at risk in your business. Most businesses actually want to reinvest the money in their business. They want to buy new equipment. They want to hire more people. They want to become more productive. This allows them uh, and and actually encourages them to do it because they have more money in their pocket so they can spend it on the things that they want as opposed to sending it to the federal government government and having those people in Washington, D.C. decide what it should be spent on. Now, that's the theory, and in theory it sounds like a a way to go, but since 2008, uh, with the Great Recession, there have been many businesses across the country that have been 
I don't know, cautious to reinvest, to hire more. One of the reasons that uh, it took so long for jobs to come back. Again, do we have any idea whether that will occur or not? Well, I think we what we can do is look to the, uh, the, the the tax reductions that we've seen historically. Let's just say in the last fifty years in America, where uh, where there's been a, a, a tax reduction, there has been an equivalent uh, and pretty predictable amount of growth in industry and in spending and in business and in upward wage production. All those things are predictable based on what what happened in the past. And we can kind of look to those things, whether it's the, the Reagan tax cuts, the Bush tax cuts, every single one produces this economic activity and encourages businesses to spend more on their business, hire more people, become more productive. So I think that's kind of the model. And, and that's fairly indisputable indisputable evidence or facts at this point. So we have a question here from a listener asked, why not give those cuts to consumers to boost consumer spending to invigorate corporate revenue? And let me just follow up with that. Sure. That one of the, the, the changes being proposed is the standard deduction would increase to $12,000 for individuals and $24,000 for married couples, or almost double the current standard deductions. The proposal also increases the child tax credit to Sixteen hundred from a thousand dollars. It provides a three hundred dollar credit for non-child dependents, such as spouses. So, right. I, I kind of provided some background there, but right, if you right. would answer the listener's question, well, absolutely, uh, consumers should get a tax break. Everybody should, and they are. If you look, as you've already mentioned, Scott, we're lowering the rates kind of across the board from seven brackets currently in the House proposal to four. One of them is literally zero. So we're, you know, literally everybody the whole way up and no matter what bracket you're in are going to see a reduction in your taxes. And that, and then that's that allows you to spend money on the things that you want to spend it on and, and you have more of it. And also don't forget that businesses are also consumers. They buy things like equipment and things like immediate, immediate and full expensing. Uh, that encourages uh, businesses to buy things, whether it's new equipment or new buildings or whatever. Um, and, and that really gets then manufacturers of what was just bought. They're working more. Uh, everybody up and down the, uh, the spectrum is, is doing more because more, there's more things happening because businesses, they're consuming as well, as well as individuals and families. Everybody is doing more because they have more. But you said almost everyone, I think you said everyone, will will see a tax cut. For those who have been dissecting this plan, and granted, it's only been released uh, 24 hours ago, less than 24 right. hours ago, there are some that saying that not everyone would see a tax cut. Uh, many people would, including in the middle class, and those who have higher incomes would see, obviously, a bigger tax, uh, tax cut. But uh, some people would move into other tax brackets and maybe not uh, respond from it. So it's one of those things that everyone will be impacted differently, right? Right. Everybody will be impacted differently. And I think that it's just a, a kind of a standard talking point that everyone won't receive a tax cut. But even if you're at the higher, uh, one of the higher brackets, the lower brackets, we have a graduated income tax system. So if, if, if when you're earning at the lower level, you receive a tax break, and and the whole way up the line. So even those that are in the higher income brackets, because opposition says, well, look, you're giving a tax break to to higher income people. Everybody is getting it, and 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 the people at the higher just get less of a tax break than the people at the lower, uh, at the lower rates or at the lower margins, depending on the tax bracket. So. Uh, you know, I think that's a little disingenuous, but yeah, everybody is going to have to look for themselves. And, you know, uh, I, I, I was hoping that we would have the calculator out at the same time. They said they were working on it. So what we're, what we're envisioning is we'll literally have a tax calculator, an app, if you will. You'll be able to go look at what your taxes are now based on your income and your location and then plug in your numbers for the new system and see what your taxes are then. And people will see very directly and almost immediately what their what their tax situation is. One of the main goals, Congressman, as you well know, is that this would simplify how you file your taxes. Uh, right. I think almost everyone would would love to see that. But uh, one of uh, the most popular deductions is mortgage interest. And right. under this plan, from what I understand, there are 21% of uh, Americans who use that deduction. 
Uh, and it would go down to like 4% with this because so many more people may not be itemizing uh, their taxes. That would seem to be an area where there's going to be some pushback because it is a popular deduction. It is a popular deduction, but what we've done, and you've kind of enumerated that in your in your opening monologue, is we've increased the standard deduction by double. So most of most of us, ninety percent, I think, of, of Pennsylvanians, it is, it is at least that's what they're estimating here, would fall within the standard deduction, uh, which is now, like you said, six thousand dollars for individuals, twelve thousand for a family. That's that's increased to twelve thousand and twenty four thousand. Most of those folks will fall within that category. And what it just means is you have less paperwork to fill out, but you get the same amount of deduction. Uh, most of us in the past used to fill out our taxes on a, you know, what was uh, I called it the 1040 EZ. That's what I used to use. Now, most of Pennsylvania's, most Americans have to go in an accountant. We want to we just take that and simplify it to one card. And if the standard deduction handles that for most people, as long as you're as long as you're able to deduct, to deduct your interest, your mortgage interest, one place or the other, the question then is, is it more simple? And I think that most people want it to be more simple as long as they can uh, take advantage of their mortgage interest deduction, and they will be able to. You know, I'm old enough, Congressman, to, to remember the Reagan tax cuts, and I remember kind of the same language at that time in the mid-1980s that it would be simple enough that we could do it on a, a postcard side size return. Is that realistic? I mean, you, you're well aware of I mean, the number right. of lobbyists, the number of people who are going to be pushing for their own causes with this legislation. I mean, is that realistic? Well, I think it's, look, I think it's, Scott, it is realistic, but I didn't say it was going to be easy. Oh, and, yeah. and as you mentioned, uh, the lobbyists and the special interests are going to be out there. And of course, the second the, the plan was uh, unveiled, they have descended on Washington, D.C., and we expect them to be here in earnest until this thing is complete. And they're going to be advocating, like you said, for their special carve-outs and so on and so forth. But it's our job as the representatives of our, our taxpayers and our citizens to be their lobbyists and advocate for them. And so that's what we're going to be doing. And it, it, like I said, I think it's realistic. I didn't, I didn't say it was going to be easy. This is the beginning of this process. We have a bill out there now that people can look at, they can be critical of. Uh, there's going to be further um, uh, amendments and changes as we what we do what we call marking up the bill, uh, and you're going to see some some tweaks and changes to that based on what we think of the best policy is, and uh, and then yet it still has to go to the Senate and there'll be more changes there. You know, at, at at some point I think there'll be some things that none of us like, and there'll be some of the things that a lot of us like, uh, and you're going to have to ask yourself on balance: is it better than the system that we have now? And I think it'd be hard to argue that almost anything at this point would be better than the system we have now, which which promotes uh, offshoring of jobs, has wages stagnant, and is taking too much money from the American people and makes almost all of us have to go visit an accountant to get our taxes done. That's not where we want to we want to be. We want to lower the taxes, make it simple, make it fair. Let's uh, take a quick call from Gary in sure. Harrisburg. Gary, you're on the air. Uh, Congressman, I, I just want to ask you, uh, could you cite yes, an sir. example of, of where states have used this, this uh, tax plan of lowering taxes on corporations and uh, where the savings have been passed on? I don't, I, I'm reasonably sure you've heard of the state of Kansas where Sam Brownback, Governor Sam Brownback, a former Republican member of Congress, took essentially the same tax philosophy of lowering taxes on high-income individuals, lowering taxes on corporations, and broke the state. And essentially, uh, you, you and the Republican members of Congress and the Trump administration are offering a tax plan that follows that philosophy and there's simply no example of history. This is just sort of a Republican fantasy that 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 this is going to produce jobs. Can you cite an example of where that's worked? Gary, thank you very much for your call, Congressman. Well, I'm not necessarily very familiar with uh, with the Kansas or the Sam Brownback plan, but this lowers every everybody's rates. This is individual rates coming down across the board. Fewer brackets, so it's more simple. Yes, there's corporate uh, savings and taxes, but there's also individual state uh, savings. 
and it's and it is focused on the the middle earners as opposed to the high wage earners. Are the high wage some of the high wage earners are they going to see some relief? In in some instances they are, but we're really focused on the middle uh, earners uh, wages and 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 the reduction in that tax liability. And I think that it is hard to argue uh, if you look at the models that we've done at the federal level that follow this, and it's been done on several occasions that that hasn't produced a great economic growth and prosperity, more prosperity for, for everybody involved. And so, like I said, I'm not familiar with, can- with what Kansas did, but it, to me it's hard to argue that lowering your tax rate personally, individually, isn't a good thing. And just because corporations who hire people are getting a break as well, um, that, we, that we have to throw it out because corporations are going to see some relief too. Corporations or your local pizza business down the street, your local pharmacy, they are your local garage. Those those people are uh, small subchapter S LLCs, and uh, and they want to hire people and they want to pay their people more. They want to buy more equipment, newer equipment. That's all good for the economy. That gets people working and that gets wages up. And so I think that that actually there is a great deal of empirical evidence to support that. Congressman, I know you have a limited amount of time, but I wanted to ask a couple more questions. Sure. Here. Uh, you're a member of the Freedom Caucus and uh, conservative members of Congress for years. I mean, this is one of uh, your your missions is to uh, keep taxes low, to uh, keep the the debt low, to keep the deficit, uh, you know, that we don't add to the deficit. Right, right. It's estimated that uh, this plan that has been proposed uh, would add $1.5 trillion to the debt over a decade. That's a lot of money. Yes, it is. And believe me, I'm as concerned as anybody. I came to Washington primarily for a couple of reasons, and you cited two of them, which taxes and spending. I, you know, the, the bill that we passed out of the House, the, the, uh, the budget bill, had $200 billion in savings in it. It wasn't nearly enough for me, and we'd fought for more, but, it, you know, this is the art of compromise here in Washington, D.C., and so we got $200 billion in savings. I would have liked to see double or triple that amount. The Senate disagrees uh, with that circumstance. And so while you come here for, in, in my case, because you think taxes are too high and that spending is too much, if you convince your colleagues that you can get 50% of the equation, in other words, they don't, they don't want to deal with spending, but they do want to deal with taxes, I think it's important that you take the win that you can and you deal with the taxes and you stay on the spending side, and we're going to stay right on it. But also at the same time, it, you know, if you're looking at what this does in the, in the vacuum of static scoring and it says, well, at 2% economic growth or GDP growth, that this is going to cut a $1.5 trillion hole in the, in the debt and the deficit, then I think you have every, absolutely every right to be concerned. But if this increases our growth to 4 Four, four, uh, four and a half percent or something GDP gross domestic product growth, then actually these these uh, tax savings actually grow the economy and wipe out the debt virtually on their own. So, so while spending cuts are important and we need to take a look at that, and I'm going to still remain a hawk on that and working on it every single day, you got to take what's offered in front of you right now is the best deal that you can get. And so taxes are where, you know, this is where the conference wants to go right now. I just need to try and convince them on the spending. Haven't been able to do that, but I'm going to do what I can where I can. And this is this is what's in front of us right now. Congressman, one final question, and this is from a listener, Jim. Uh, yeah. Who, I know that this has uh, been an area of contention and some controversy, but uh, Jim wants to know, are you going to schedule a town hall meeting to talk about this plan? We have been uh, working through that. I will tell you there are problems with venue and cost. Uh, a lot of places don't want to host anymore, and uh, and the cost of because of security has become prohibitive. I will tell Jim that I'm happy to uh, entertain a personal meeting with him in the office if he wants to call in. The number is 600-1919. Uh, we schedule meetings with constituents all the time. We'll talk about tax or anything on his mind and uh, answer every question to our ability or get the answers that uh, that we don't have at, at the time of the meeting. So I just want to offer that to him and all my constituents. Well, Congressman, I mean, as you well know, as you said, security, the, the cost, that there are people who think that you're avoiding these things because they'll get loud and there may be people who disagree with you. What do you say to sure. these people? Uh, look, I, I've been the only member of the Pennsylvania delegation that has town me- town hall meetings since I was a state representative. But obviously, circumstances have changed a little bit, and we're trying to adjust to that. 
in, 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 in concurrence with what the advice we get from Capitol Police and security is as well. That having been said, you know, all the yelling and screaming, while I guess it makes for great theater and TV, it doesn't do much to solve any problems or get to any solutions. And that that's really, I think, the answer that we're trying to get to is, is finding solutions. And so if people want to come and yell at me, they can they can do that, too. Uh, but if we want to find solutions, like I said, I'm offering myself up for meetings. We have them continuously in the district. That's what district work periods are for. And, uh, and we schedule, you know, we're as busy and when we're in, at home in York and, and, uh, and Cumberland County and Adams County and Harrisburg, we're as busy when we're home there as we are when we're in Washington, D.C., meeting with constituents and hearing their concerns and, and trying to solve their problems. Congressman Scott Perry, thank you very much for being with us today. Yes, sir. Great to be with you. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com slash spine. On Monday, Governor Wolf signed into law a gambling expansion bill that would generate a projected $200 million a year for the state in the form of licensure fees and tax gaming revenue. While the state is desperate to plug a $2 billion-plus structural shortfall, critics argue that reliance on gaming revenue is misplaced. Joining us now is David Schwartz, director of the University of Nevada Las Vegas Center for Gaming Research. And I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Schwartz, for coming on the program today. Thanks for having me. Pennsylvania Governor Wolf, as I said, signed that into law earlier this week. Uh, Now, Pennsylvania already ranks number two behind Nevada in gaming revenue. The governor's made it clear that he's reluctant to expand gaming to raise the revenue, uh, but that he told a radio station earlier this week, I think it wasn't something anybody was really wild about, but it was a compromise, and I signed it. So here's the big question. Historically, has state-sanctioned gaming been a reliable year-after-year revenue generator? In many states it has. Certainly you look at Nevada, and for most of the history it has. Of course, with the recession, that wasn't necessarily true, but it seems to have been relatively reliable. And and when you say relatively reliable, and I think one of the keys there is year after year. Uh, I mean, I've I've read studies that say that uh, there is some short-term success, revenue enhancement, but in the long term, it is something that is, is, is not as reliable. Well, I think in most states it has. If you look at Atlantic City, my hometown, certainly they are not making as much from gaming as they used to. And a lot of that is because of the expansion in places like Pennsylvania. But people certainly, since the modern legalization of the lottery in the 1960s, have shown a propensity to gamble. That seems to be pretty much a constant. You know, the fortunes of individual jurisdictions, that's fluctuated. Something you just brought up, that competition, uh, when Pennsylvania passed the law in 2004 that uh, legalized slot machines for the first time in the state, it was took to about 2006 before we started uh, seeing any uh, revenue from it. But uh, when it was passed, uh, one of the arguments for doing it is that uh, uh, the states around Pennsylvania, the people were leaving to go to Atlantic City. Um, West Virginia had slot machines. Uh, Now everybody has some form of gambling. It's like 48 states have gaming of some kind. So is competition as uh, big a deal as it used to be? Well, it definitely is one of the incentives for places to legalize, or in Pennsylvania's case, expand casino gambling. If everyone else has it, then there's no reason to have people leave your state to do it someplace else, because that other state's going to get all the tax benefits, which is what is really driving all of it. So I don't think it's a matter of trying to get ahead of states like New Jersey anymore. It's more about trying to stay on par with states like Ohio 
and New York and West Virginia. I wonder then, do states have to kind of one-up each other then? Um, You know, you start with slots. Pennsylvania added uh, table games in uh, 2010. And now, as we said, like all the states have, does it kind of incentivize states who are constantly looking for revenue without raising taxes to continue to find ways to expand gambling? It does. You know, and that's something that I've called the casino arms race, where one state has it, the other, you know, one state has slot machines. So the other state, which already had slot machines, decides they need table games. And now it seems like Internet is the next layer of that, where they're trying to just stay ahead of the cycle. Pennsylvania, as part of this legislation, will make Internet gambling part of what we're doing. You know, I was thinking myself, now I'm no expert on this, but I was thinking about where else the state can go. And I was wondering if maybe sports betting is the next level or what else is there left? Well, that's exactly the thing. You know, sports betting is one of the few frontiers left for legal gaming in the United States. And this is why the American Gaming Association, which is the trade group of many casinos is lobbying to try to get that legalized more broadly across the United States. Mm. So, and, and there's a big court case coming up uh, that involves New Jersey, and that kind of could have an impact on what happens in other states across the country, correct? Oh, it absolutely could. And, you know, people are waiting for this. But Congress could also choose to legalize sports betting without waiting for a court case, or if the court case doesn't work out. But either way, You know, I would say that it looks like this is going to happen because there's just too many states that need money. And frankly, there's too many people who are betting on sports to keep it illegal in most of the country for very long. There was an April 2016 report from the Rockefeller Institute of Government entitled State Revenues from Gambling, Short-Term Relief, Long-Term Disappointment by uh, Lucy uh, Dadian concluded in the wake of the Great Recession, many consumers became more conservative in their spending behavior, particularly when it comes to discretionary spending. Since spending money on gambling activities is discretionary, consumers are less likely to spend significantly more on gambling despite the expansion of gambling. What's your opinion on that? Well, I mean, maybe, but if you look at the numbers, I'm just going to give you the numbers for this year. So through September of this year, total casino gaming, commercial casino gaming, not tribal, in the U.S. is up by about 3%. So it does seem to still be growing. Does it have a a negative impact, though, on, I mean, I know originally uh, the casinos here in Pennsylvania were against, you know, some forms of expanded gaming. Uh, The Pennsylvania lottery is also something that is very wary of uh, the number of ways in which uh, Pennsylvanians can uh, use their discretionary dollars. I mean, are there winners and losers when gambling is expanded? It's kind of difficult to say. And one of the interesting things, I think, is Las Vegas itself, where you have, of course, the tourist casinos and the strip, but you also have about a $2 billion a year industry of locals casinos. And in addition to that, as people who have been to Vegas know, you've got gambling at the airports and at gas stations and at convenience stores and at supermarkets. So that would suggest to me at least that you can have a big industry of casinos for people in the area as well as this convenience gambling. But what is true in Las Vegas might not be true in Pennsylvania. Well, you know, it's it's funny that we're even talking about uh, funny, not ha-ha funny, but uh, yeah. that we're talking about uh, Pennsylvania in the same sentence as Nevada and Las Vegas with gambling. I mean, that's how much it's expanded. But we're, Pennsylvania has a long way to go before it reaches the heights that uh, Las Vegas has in gambling. But as I said, a solid number two when it comes to uh, revenue coming in. Uh, and now part of that, of course, is uh, the Pennsylvania's tax rate is so high on, on, on gambling as well. But something you just mentioned I wanted to follow up on. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, in, in Nevada and in other states and here in Pennsylvania now, it will happen that there will be slot machines in truck stops, uh, that there will be 10 mini casinos, just smaller venues for where people can gamble. Uh, What is the impact of those smaller venues for it? And, you know, again, looking at the Las Vegas example, it doesn't seem to have adversely hurt the bigger venues that much. It's hard. Again, it's hard to say, though, because not every city is like Las Vegas, but at least from what we have here, it hasn't hurt it that much.
Do people, I mean, now restricted to truck stops here, uh, and I, I think that part of that was because that would keep uh, younger people, people under the age of 18 kids, from uh, from gambling. Uh, but, I mean, first of all, let me ask that question. Has that happened? I mean, is that an issue in Vegas, in uh, Nevada, and some of these other states where younger people, people who are of legal age, are gambling? You know, I'm sure it has happened that somebody under the age of 21 has put a quarter into a slot machine somewhere. It's the kind of thing, though, where the employees working there are trained to stop them from doing it. And I think it's just like buying cigarettes or alcohol from underage people. They are trained not to do it. And if a place does let people do it, they get fined. So the operator has a pretty big incentive not to let people do that. But again, just certainly one of your listeners bought alcohol when they were underage. So I'm sure this happens, but they try to not let it happen. Mm. Well, since we're talking about that, uh, the American Psychiatric Association estimates there are about 5.5 million adults who could classify be classified as problem gamblers, another 15 million at risk. One study suggests the minimum estimated average cost to the combined public and private sector economies of the states, about $13,000 per problem gambler per year. Do gaming taxes and fees offset the cost of gambling to the community? In many states, they do. They provide money for problem gambling programs, so people who do have issues with that can get help. So many states do mandate that the taxes go towards relief for problem gamblers. Mm. Uh, Do we see any kind of trends that when gambling is expanded, I mean, it would seem to make sense that there would be more problem gamblers uh, if there is more gambling available. So, you know, many of the studies I've seen, and I certainly haven't seen every study because I don't focus on problem gambling, but the studies that I've seen have said that that doesn't seem to happen, that the rate seems to have been constant over the past 30 years, even though we've had a really big expansion of gambling. Hmm. Again, that would seem to be, uh, I don't know, it doesn't really make sense when you you look at it that way because there's more gambling available that would seem to say there would be more more people who would be problem gamblers. Uh, What about the arguments that gaming revenue is representative of regressive, regressive taxation? Uh, you know, that might be true. And again, I'm not really a taxation extra person, so I'm probably not the best person to talk about that. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Heather in Middletown. Heather is one of our callers. Heather, you're on the air. Hi. Um, gambling is a huge problem. My mom is in her late 60s. She, we They have a casino right by her house, Presque Isle Downs. Um, there's times we couldn't find her. She would make up every live where she was. She has completely depleted every bit of savings she's had. She's maxed out her credit cards numerous times. Between me and my sister, we've bailed her out. Um, then she gets more credit anyway. She doesn't have the means to stop herself. We don't need more ways to gamble. We don't. If a person wants to go and enjoy themselves, they can find a way. The la- Now it's another fear that my mom's going to go somewhere else. I won't even be able to trust her to go to the store. And for the people to say, oh, well, don't help her. She's my mom. I'm always going to help her. She brought me life. Like, they, the people that think, oh, tax revenue, they don't look at the damage that this does. This has damaged my mom financially. It's damaged us financially, her children. It, it's it's going to damage her grandchildren financially. But they get a high off of this. And I just hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, Professor, obviously someone very passionate who uh, has had some bad experiences. Yeah, obviously, and I definitely hope that she's able to get help for her mother and is able to help her stop gambling. Uh, Clearly, there is revenue to be generated, but uh, I guess the big question is, is this sustainable growth-supporting revenue? Well, I think the bigger question is, is it going to be enough revenue? And the answer is probably no, because there's never any limit to the programs that states need. So that's probably the bigger question. And certainly it will make some money, but the bigger question is what are you going to do about the spending? And I want to thank you very much for being with us today. David Schwartz, director of UNLV Center for Gaming Research. Professor Schwartz, thank you very much for being with us today. 
Thanks for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. After Tuesday's terrorist attacks in New York, where eight people were killed on a bike path, many in law enforcement and homeland security are trying to figure out how to protect against a soft target using a vehicle. So how do we protect against the non-traditional acts of terrorism? Joining us is Dwayne Hagelgans. On the, he's on the South Central Pennsylvania Counterterrorism Task Force, an assistant professor at Millersville's University Center for Disaster Research and Education. Dwayne Hagelgans, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. If you would like to go on Facebook, WITF's Facebook page, to leave a question or comment, you could do that. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. All right, so let's talk about that, that big question I just asked there that everyone is scratching their head over is how do we protect against soft targets like a bike path in New York where people are just riding a bike, walking, and, you know, it's not a place where it's a special event or anything like that. How do we protect against that? Well, there's two things, really, Scott. Number one is in a lot of these events, we always find out after the fact that somebody knew about it ahead of time. So, So we really need citizens to be situationally aware. If something seems unusual, they need to report it. But more importantly, and I say this to my son all the time, he's down in Philadelphia at school, and I say, you know, you have to be alert to your surroundings. You have to be paying attention to what's happening. And especially when you're in, you know, for lack of a better term, there's there's high-risk locations, right? I mean, we know New York. We know some of these big places where there's a lot of people, especially a lot of tourists. We've seen this in Paris and other places. People just have to be alert to their surroundings. And unfortunately, as terrible as it may sound, sometimes there's things that that you just can't stop. You know, if somebody wants to drive up onto the curb off the side of the road, unfortunately, sometimes those things are all but impossible to stop. Yeah, you're right. A lot of people don't want to hear that. But I mean, I I just am picturing this. You're riding a bike uh, on a on a bike trail in New York. It's I mean there are a lot of people around anywhere. As I said, it's not a special event. There are cars and trucks driving by you on the street all day. I mean all all along. And if one wants to decide, uh, if someone wants to decide to drive up on the, the the curb and wipe people out, there's no way to stop it. It's it's a, it sounds terrible, but yeah, unfortunately, it, it's correct. I mean, on the bike path. The thing about, and I'm apologizing, I'm, I'm inside and outside trying to figure out what's best on the phone. Here, but you sound pretty what, good right now. <laughs> okay, good. So, you know, when it's a bike path like that, you know, for bike paths, you can put up a bulliard so that somebody can't take a, a vehicle down. I mean, you see a shopping mall, you see it at the Turkey Hills, you know, they have the little cement bulliards up to stop it. But, you know, what we saw in London, you know, where, where cars just driving down the street and decides to go up onto the curb, other than... Other than basically, you know, having your head on a swivel and watching everything at all times, you know, as I tell my students all the time in our in our terrorism class, unfortunately, if somebody's willing to give their life to die for a cause, they're hard to stop. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that uh, is always striking after an attack like this is how the terrorists continue to find different ways to kill and harm people, to create that that fear. I mean, using airplanes was one thing. Now we've, uh, right. over the, the last 16 years, taken uh, tremendous steps in trying to stop a terrorist from getting on an airplane. Uh, we do the thing, we do that when there, there's a large uh, gathering of people, uh, maybe something that has special significance. But in, in a case like this, or where you you know you suggested Paris, where people are at a concert or people are just out to dinner, I, that is, that is very difficult, Dwayne. It, it, it absolutely is. And what's what's more alarming, and what's the part that's very hard to to challenge and stop is it's all taking place on social media now. You know, back prior to nine eleven, or even right after nine eleven. A lot of these these terrorists were trained because they went to places to get training. Well, as we saw in Harrisburg, I believe it's two years ago, people can be home on their computer and being, uh, for lack of a better term, radicalized. And so social media has helped uh, the terrorists, the terror organizations, 
and, and has hurt us as a society because people can basically be taught things to do over the Internet, and I'm not sure how you stop that. Well, that was my next question. <laughs> Any ideas? I mean, have, have there? I'm sure that you're studying this all the time. Uh, are there any ideas on how you maybe not stop it, but can uh, maybe protect against it or reduce it where people become radicalized online? Well, I believe the, the number one thing is obviously there's not enough in law enforcement. There's not enough in care, counterterrorism to watch everything that's happening uh, on the Internet and on social media. However, what, what there is and what we've seen is that when citizens see something that see, seems unusual or they see something on, on the Internet or social media where somebody sounds like maybe uh, something's going to happen, they need to absolutely report it. I've been saying this since Columbine. You know, you, you, you have to take everything seriously. I tell my students, you know, there's things you don't joke about. If somebody's writing something on social media or somebody's trying to contact you on social media, or somebody's trying to, or you see somebody doing something on social media, you need to report that, you know, from a law enforcement standpoint, rather investigate everything, find out it's nothing, then find out after the fact somebody says, well, I knew that was going to happen. I saw this person watching this video. I saw this person, or I was, I was prompted by this person to do something. So that we need everybody to kind of be aware and alert and report whatever they see. You know, Dwayne, I, I heard, and we hear this after every terrorist attack, uh, Bill de Blasio, the uh, mayor of New York, said, that, you know, that what the terrorist goal is to change our way of life, and we won't allow them to do that. Well, I mean, that sounds great, and we'd like to think that way, but realistically, haven't they changed our way of life? The way we have to think, I mean, just what you described is a big change from 20 years ago. Absolutely. And and I'll give you an example so there was, a, there was a high school student that was going to do an event against her high school here down in Maryland maybe a year or so ago. And, and she was basically asking questions that 20 years ago or 10 years ago, you know, the questions she was asking would have been simple questions and helpful questions. And it ends up the questions she was asking were to, um, you know, try to plan an attack. So whereas 10 years ago you could have looked at it as, ah, this is just a kid asking some questions. When those questions get asked today by anybody, you know, we need to we need to act and see why. So, yeah, they've definitely changed our way of life. Uh, you know, when you go to a, an athletic event now, you know, you go through metal detectors and you're you're concerned. You know, when you go to a concert, you're concerned. Now, when you're walking down the street or sitting at an outdoor restaurant, you're concerned. So I'd say I'd say, yeah, um, to some extent they're winning. Well, that's certainly disappointing to hear, and I I know that uh, a lot of people don't want to admit that, but it it, it may be may be true. And you say you're down in Maryland. Uh, tell our listeners where you are, Dwayne. Sure, I'm at the National Emergency Training Center down in uh, Maryland, doing some work with FEMA, trying to basically get people prepared. Whether again, natural disaster, terrorism event, technological event, uh, we're doing some work down here to try and basically we have people from around the country here, and we're we're kind of training them and educating them on on how to uh, to deal with disasters of all types. And that's in Emmitsburg, Maryland, which, of course, right, right. over the uh, Pennsylvania line, just south of Gettysburg. Absolutely. Uh, we have a phone call from Michael in Allentown. Michael, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing today, sir? Doing well. Hi, I, I'm actually military intelligence, um, and I, I deal a little bit with counterterrorism and uh, counter drug activity. And and I just I, I was listening to you guys, and I really wanted to comment just for listeners. That I think one of the biggest things that has to change is that the people have to start educating themselves on what to look for. At the end of the day, you have a limited amount of law enforcement personnel and people who are trained for many years to know what to look for, and we rely on them to find the warning signs and deal with this. But at the end of the day, there's a lot more people in the communities at jobs and, and where you live that you can learn the warning signs. And I think, I think the biggest thing where terrorists, terrorists win is where we're afraid and uninformed. When you're informed, you can eliminate their effectability. Michael, we've touched on this. Dwayne talked about some of those warning signs, but what are some of the warning signs that people should be looking for? I think for for one, you have to understand their, their mentality, what drives them. We understand their attacks. We understand a little bit how their tactics change, uh, as we saw in New York. But understanding what drives them, because there are fundamental religious things that are under undertoned in it that you can pick up on. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, but something else you said. We live in a free society, obviously. Um, one of the the, the 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 parts of that is that the, you know when we have this whole discussion, is that we don't want to profile, that we don't want to, we don't want to prejudge someone by the way they look, what their last name is, the religion that they practice. So, with all those things in mind, uh, does that make it more difficult? Uh, I, I think I think no, because I, I think there's, it's easy to politicize it. However, there are simple warning signs that aren't profiled. For instance, in the military, we talk about you know, I talk about how is there people who are financially out of nowhere, you know, somehow unstable now, where they used to be financially on top of things and they're vulnerable to that. They used to be emotionally stable and now they react sharply to different things. When you start noticing that those are warning signs and not necessarily what their religious affiliation is or the color of their skin, but just a change in behavior that's unusual, a simple question, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Can go a long way from someone snapping to running over people. Is that, does that make sense, sir? Yes, absolutely. Michael, thank you very much for your call. Dwayne, you touched on some of these things, too. Right. And, you know, you have an issue, and he makes a, a great point. And again, one of the things I try and tell all of our students at school, not just the ones that are in my classes, but you need to pay attention to what's happening around you. You know, is the roommate doing something strange? Do you see some, you know, the kids are on social media all the time. So they, all of a sudden, they get something on social media. They have to take this stuff seriously and they have to report it. Um, one of the issues that we have a lot in society today is that nobody knows their neighbors. You know, when you, when a lot of times they interview people after these attacks and they go, oh, well, they kept to themselves. They're in there. You know, if you go back in time 20, 30 years ago, again, everybody knew their neighbors and, and people don't know their neighbors. Society's busy. We're stuck in this social media rut, so to speak, where everybody's uh, on their phones and they have friends all over the world, supposedly, but they don't know who lives next door. And you, and you just have to be, you know, as a society, we, we have to take all these things seriously. When we see something, you know, we have to report it to the authorities. You know, a lot of times it's easy to just delete something off social media, but if something doesn't seem right, there, you know, it needs to be reported. But, you know, I just want to push back a little bit on what you're saying that, uh, you, yes, after these attacks, you do hear often you hear someone say he kept to himself or uh, they kept to themselves. But then you also hear people who said, you know, I, can't, I find this hard to believe that this guy did this because we've worked together for five or six years. He was friendly. I saw his kids outside or, uh, you know, even though they didn't say a whole lot, they were very friendly. But the, the co-workers who would say that, you know, I never would have suspected this or expected this. So even then, it seems like it would be difficult. Well, one of the things we definitely know about terrorists are terrorists are very patient people. And again, um, you know, when we when we talk about this in class, you know, and I have a list of, of things that that terrorists do and how they train and their motives and their operations. And a lot of that comes down to making sure you blend in, making sure that, you know, you you become the guy in the neighborhood or the girl in the neighborhood. So, yeah, there, there, there is some of that um, for sure. But. You know, at the end, and again, you know, I'll go back to school shootings a little bit. You know, 95% of school shootings, somebody knew about it before it happened, and they didn't report it, or it could have been stopped. Um, it, You know, the terrorists, you know, and again, I, I hate to say they're winning. That just sounds terrible. But, you know, if they have the patience and they have the will to do some heinous act and with the ability to train through social media, it makes it very challenging unless everybody – is situationally where, just like like the gentleman on the call said, you know, society has there's not enough law enforcement to watch everybody. We see that every time. We have to have people stepping up, and if they think something's wrong, they have to be able to report it. Let's go to John and Lickdale. John, you're on the air. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, uh, everything that has been said uh, on the phone or on the on the radio here, I agree with. But one thing has not been talked about, and that is the whole point of uh, the terrorist activity is an attack on uh, our way of life for all of us. It, and um, what uh, Mayor de Blasio was referring to, if you think about that, that means that the terrorists are winning. They're winning because we are changing so much about our lives uh, 
on the uh, in order to guard against a very very unlikely event that any one of us would be involved in uh, in one of these actions mm. and and so all of the things that we do we have to take into consideration what how are we affecting our own uh, way of living and is it worth it for the likelihood the tiny likelihood of any individual um, uh, suffering harm because of not taking a particular precaution. John, thank you very much for your call. You actually anticipated my uh, next question, Dwayne, and that is you will have people who will say that uh, you know, the amount of money that we spend, uh, the precautions that we take against active terrorism, yes, when there is a terrorist act, it is it is heinous and no one wants to see it, but that it's way out of line with uh, some other threats that we face in our society, like, say, the opioid crisis or, you know, people that don't even have enough food to eat, that, you know, that these are the things that uh, we, we almost have to weigh against one another. Well, it's, it's a security versus freedom thing. And the reality of it is, you know, 90 percent of disasters are natural disasters that we're seeing around the around the, the world right now. But what we run into is when these events are so highly publicized and so uh, media intense when they happen that that's why all you know nobody wants to be the person that's the elected official that didn't throw enough money at a terrorism event even though you're you're absolutely correct you know um, from the standpoint of statistically what's your chances of of being you know killed in an automobile accident versus a terrorism event it's it's astronomically different but you know, because it's high profile, that's why the money gets thrown at it. Mm. Dwayne Hegelgans is on the South Central Pennsylvania Counterterrorism Task Force and assistant professor at Millersville University Center for Disaster mm-hmm. Research and Education. Dwayne, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on Monday's program, the state may have a final budget, but is there enough money in reserve? Also a best-selling author on his latest book about an important figure in the Civil War. Something else I want to mention that uh, coming up next week, next Thursday, in fact, uh, we will have a Smart Talk road trip to uh, the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank. And, uh, yes, it's coming to that time of year, holiday season, when, uh, yes, we're thinking a little bit more about uh, making, uh, making food available to those people people who, although this should be a year-round thing, and uh, the food bank does that, but uh, a lot more people are paying attention. We will be broadcasting live from the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank. We'd like you to come out, watch the broadcast. Uh, We're going to talk about a lot of things, the warehouse, how the food is handed out. Go to witf.org slash events and RSVP to attend next Thursday. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com.